Welcome to the podcast of Amago Day Community, where we are convicted to help bring the whole gospel to the whole person, to the whole world. Join us in this Sunday service as we look to the scriptures, seeking to be transformed into the image of Christ. So as uh, Paul said, we're starting a new series. It's called Arise. Um, uh, as you see that tagline down at the bottom, a community formed by resurrection. That's what we're going to talk about today. And, and over the next several weeks, we're going to talk about several of the things that formed the uh, early church and were designed to be uh, forming uh, issues in our lives as well. So you can get an idea of what something might be as as far as an idea that actually then almost takes on a a symbol. And a symbol isn't a a fictitious thing. It's just an expression, um, something you can grab hold of that's shorthand for that idea. So um, a few centuries ago when America was starting, uh, we were an agricultural culture. And uh, even in that time, uh, America had an American dream. And the American dream was that you would be free, you'd be able to set uh, up to pursue your dreams, and that uh, you would be successful. And in an agricultural society, one of the uh, uh, ideas of success would be that you would be affluent enough that you would have leisure time. And since everybody is basically working in the fields as an agricultural uh, person, leisure time started to be recognized by somebody who was able to get out of the sun and out of the fields. And so uh, having a European uh, beginning to our country, basically the way you could tell somebody who was making it was if they were pasty white people. A century later, as the Industrial Revolution started and we became more of an industrialized uh, country, fewer and fewer people were working outside and were working inside. The idea of uh, being able to have leisure time didn't change, but the symbol radically changed from being pasty white to having bronzed skin. So that that now the way we could tell whether or not you had any kind of leisure time was that you were able to be away from your work inside and go outside and be in the sun. And and so the idea didn't change, but the symbol changed. You know, there is an idea that God has said from the beginning, and that's that he is life and that he is loving. And he intends for each person to know him in a loving relationship and experience him as the life giver. In the story that God is unfolding in real time, he created an Adam and an Eve who are in a garden, and Adam and Eve lived in relationship with him and had life. And he warned them. He warned them that if they were to eat of the tree uh, of the uh, knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. Now, think about it. They, they live in a place called paradise. Nothing has ever died. So when he says that, they're going, I don't really know what that means, but I know it sounds bad. So they know that death is coming if they eat of the tree, and they still do. And you can just see, put yourself in that place. You eat of the fruit, and you're kind of going, I can still breathe. I still have a pulse. God was wrong. And now we really know we're off the page, you know, when we can conclude that God was wrong. 
So they're at this place where they're going, I didn't die. But that's because they describe death in a very narrow part, one aspect of death, when you cease to breathe and your body ceases to function. But they did die the minute they did that because God said, you've disconnected from me. We don't have that relationship. You've blocked love going back and forth. The life is something that I jump-started, but it's not something that you're really experiencing on a sustaining level that comes through a, a nurturing relationship. And so it's broken. And that becomes kind of the, the uh, symbol is death. It described the broken relationship. It gets pictured by when our body shuts down. It's something that we try and avoid. It's something that we grieve. Death becomes this pervasive symbol of what's wrong with the world. And so in the New Testament, when Jesus um, died, it looked as though evil had won and that the story was at risk. So when he rose from the dead, which was really a surprise even to his disciples, they grabbed onto that resurrection and said, this is going to be our new symbol of what it looks like for us to say the story's intact, the story is going on. In fact, the good story of God could not be defeated by the evil of death. And so resurrection became the counter to death being what looked like the story we live in. I don't know how many of you have just kind of a a typical response to things. When I was driving um, here today and I got rerouted across the steel bridge the opposite direction of where I'm going, I just went, perfect. This is what it is. And in my head, I'm going, this is my life. Everything's broken. Nothing works. In fact, I believe that there were a group of people that are city planners that huddled together and said, what time do you think Bill's going to come to Imago Day? That's when we will kick everything into action and he will have to go the opposite direction of where he wants to go. All that's going through my mind. I'm mentally disturbed. <laughs> in that process, there's a picture that I'm invited to called resurrection, that says broken is not the prevailing picture that I need to look at life from. Resurrection is the prevailing picture. It's what I want to be formed by as a person and as a people of God. We're invited to be formed by resurrection so that we could tell ourselves resurrection rather than it figures. Life is broken. So I want to read a portion of Peter's first sermon after the resurrection. People hear it in this description that Luke gives us of the sermon. He describes them as cut to the heart so that they respond out of their own brokenness to experience the wholeness that comes from resurrection. So it comes out of Acts 2 if you want to follow along. I'm going to pick it up in verse 22. So he starts... Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. With the help of wicked men, you put him to death by nailing him to the cross. 
But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here today. But he was a prophet, and he knew that God had promised him an oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and to the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the promises for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all the Lord your God will call. And with many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. What an amazing event to have been part of. If you're Peter, you have to be thrilled that when you actually confront somebody about their involvement in the story being challenged by killing Jesus, they respond by repenting and saying, I believe in a resurrected Christ who is God's deliverer, his Messiah. So I want you to think about, in in terms of, of where we would go with that today, the whole idea of what it looks like for you to live in a world that screams death, death, death. And I'm not saying death like death of a loved one, though that's true. I'm not saying death like death of a dream, but I'm saying all the things that are broken. Death simply being that, that symbol for brokenness, for things not working, for things that should be straight being bent, and that we can't straighten them out. That's what Ecclesiastes says. No man can straighten what God has bent. And so as we look at the consequence of a world gone rogue from God, we see a description called death. And we live in that world. But we've been invited to be people that are formed by the resurrection rather than conformed to the environment we find ourselves in where things don't just simply work out and we can become skeptics. We can become frustrated. We can become people who somehow think that if God really were running the ship, it wouldn't look like this or feel like this at all. 
And that's what resurrection's supposed to do. It's supposed to be able to seep into that space and give us hope when everything around us would coach to hopelessness. To give us an ability to respond to the person who is initiating a death feeling, whether it just happens to be selfishness or whether it happens to be hurtfulness, that rather than responding in defense and whether than collecting wounds, we would be able to respond as being people who are identified by resurrection. So um, I hesitate to even say this because uh, those of you who have been here for a while uh, know my story and heard me talk about it several times. But when um, I first married my wife, Sue, um, I had an identity that I was wearing, and it was a wound. And it was a wound called widower, because the woman that I'd been married to for 31 years had died. And Sue and I talked about that. I said, I don't think I'm going to make a great spouse because I'm still in grief. And she was great. She said, you can grieve her the rest of your life if you can love me the rest of your life. I went, well, okay. (laughs) That was a great response. So um, as we started that relationship, uh, this June we'll have been married seven years. And I'm just getting to the place where I feel like God's healed me enough that my prevailing symbol is not widower. It's partner. That Sue's my partner. I'm her partner. That, that, that I'm a husband, I'm a spouse. And, that, and there's a part of me that, you know, is a past that has a wife who was a partner and a best friend who is deceased. And uh, every time I go to one of my kids' houses, I see pictures of... Um, Jeannie, and I see pictures of me and Jeannie, and uh, I'm reminded, and there's nothing wrong with being reminded and having her be a, a friend that I've lost, but there's something wrong about keeping it as a prevailing tag of identity of who I am. And when we trust Jesus, there's something wrong about keeping a prevailing tag that's death, that thinks that life is broken, that just goes, perfect, this is the way it is. Everybody conspires against me, and we just live within that cloud of death rather than take on being formed by resurrection. And that we get glimpses and hopes into what's coming. And we get to practice even now the presence that was lost to Adam and Eve in a garden that's been restored through a resurrected Jesus. That's what you and I have been invited to, is to be people that are formed by a resurrection and have a prevailing symbol that we live by that that forms us on a daily basis so that when we're challenged to check in on the old school, that we check in on the new rule. And that's Jesus as a resurrected king. What's amazing about it, if you read these verses that I've just read, and I encourage you to read them again, is that Peter says, you killed Jesus. And then he goes on to say, you, with the help of lawless, or with the help of sinful men, killed Jesus. And then one more time, he says, you killed Jesus. 
I have a friend who um, uh, works as a missionary in the Czech Republic, and he did a master's degree in communication, and he compared um, contemporary sermons with uh, the sermons that are in the New Testament. And one of his observations was that contemporary sermons have a tendency to say, people do, and then they fill in the blank with terrible things. There are some people who will abandon their family. There are some people who abuse others. There are some people, and you're just kind of left in, you know, the audience to comfortably not connect the dots. Peter doesn't give us that comfort space. He gets right in everybody's face who's listening to him, and he says, you killed Jesus. You can start to see how, you know, they're probably going, well, then one more wouldn't hurt, Peter, you know, and uh, kind of getting the idea um, that, of how to stop this voice. But there's a part that well, how they respond is that it cuts them heart deep. And they start to realize, not just that they killed Jesus, but by killing, they got identified with death. And death was what got assigned to Adam and Eve in the garden when they disobeyed. And we inherit that death uh, team. And that they were playing for team death when they killed Jesus. And they actually thought they were playing for team God. They thought they were being godly when they killed God (laughs) because they had been so jacked up or so hijacked by the symbol called death. And as they heard that Jesus had rose from the dead and they started to realize, I know somebody who saw him. They started to realize if, if he isn't raised from the dead, can't we just find the tomb, produce the body and end this? But there was no body to be found because he had risen from the dead. And as they processed it, they repented. They did a 180, realizing, I have been on team death. In my actions, in my thoughts, I've been on team death, thinking I was on team life. And I want to change from from death to life. And that was the invitation that Peter extended and the one that they were saying, what do we do? How do we get out of stuck and into free? How do we move from from being someone who's characterized by an entire way of thinking, perfect, it's broken, to the perfect is coming because he's risen? How do we make that kind of shift became part of where they were at? And the shift comes by what Peter says, repent and believe. And he says, why don't you come forward, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus? It's interesting they'd use that word. And, and I do know that they got baptized. It says that they did at that point. But it's interesting because the word baptism doesn't simply mean getting wet. It means identity. So uh, these are a pair of blue jeans. Uh, If we were in New Testament times, uh, someone could easily have said, those jeans have been baptized blue. It just means they've been put in some kind of blue dye to the extent that they're going to be blue no matter where they go. They're going to be blue jeans in the closet. They're going to be blue jeans when I wear them. They're going to be blue jeans in the laundry. They're just going to be blue jeans everywhere. 
Okay, and I've been a youth pastor for for many years, and then when I kind of made the shift to uh, working with adults, I'm going, okay, what's going to be the lay of the land? I realize the definition I use for maturity with students is the same definition I could use for people. You know, because when I was working with students, I had some students that were one way at school, and they were another way at home, and they were another way at youth group, and that's immaturity. It's disintegrated. And as we become an integrated person, that's a picture of maturity. So when the person's the same at school and the same at home and the same at church, that's a a genuine person. Okay? And it becomes the same with an adult. If you are the same at church and the same at work and the same at home, you're integrated. And if you are different at the different spheres that you find yourself in, you are disintegrated and basically immature. So when Peter is inviting people to be baptized in the name of Jesus, he's not simply saying, come get wet. He's saying, be integrated. So that when you find yourself at home, you're Jesus. And when you find yourself at church, you're Jesus. And when you find yourself at work, you're Jesus. Do you understand that he's saying the big idea is Jesus and the symbol for that? He's resurrected. He's alive. He walks and lives with you. You can know him, not just after you die, now. That's the distinction is that resurrection life starts now because Jesus is the one who invaded the story and said, we're not going to live by death looking like it's stolen the storyline anymore. We're going to bring life into it even before it's over. And life starts to be the loudest note in the symphony that's being played. And that we get invited to be a person who simply plays whatever instrument called our life in the key of resurrection. That that we would live and follow Jesus in a way that, that shouts he's alive and that it makes a difference in how we process life rather than simply processing death and trying to figure out how to cope with it. It's hanging on to life and figuring out how to express it. So Peter uh, preaches to this 3,000 group of people, and and as they say, what shall we do? And he says, repent and be uh, baptized. 3,000 people respond, and, and, and they repent, and they're baptized, and they believe in Jesus. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. So I, I want to ask you the question, what is it that would look like a repent for you? What would it look like, that the things that you hold on to? Most of us don't want the things that are painful. But most of us have developed some kind of skepticism that we think it might be just as painful to let go of other things. So I was listening to this um, uh, pre, uh, post-recorded um, um, uh, lecture that Dallas Willard was giving, uh, and he um, said, every once in a while someone will say, well, how do you deal with skeptics? Which would be everybody, right? And so as we're looking at the idea of how do you deal with skeptics, he goes, the interesting thing to me is that most skeptics are at the place where they doubt what they believe, and they believe what they doubt, And he said, what I do is I invite them to do just the opposite. Is the next time you doubt, could you just doubt your doubt? And then could you believe your beliefs? 
And, and as I started thinking about that, I thought, that's just so crazy. Why, why did it take somebody with a PhD in philosophy to point that out, you know? I don't know. I guess I doubted it. But as we kind of look at this idea of saying, you probably doubt the resurrection at times. You doubt whether or not God is going to show up in your life at times. But it's probably because you really don't want to change. It's probably because you just want God to change some things and leave you alone. You know? And God is interested in changing things. He's interested in changing people. And so he comes into our lives in invasive ways and rearranges our ideas because we have an idea that everything's broken. And to change that idea to this resurrection is a total recalibration of who you are. That's why Jesus says, die to yourself and live to me. Anyone who would follow me must pick up his cross. You know, at the time he said that, he hadn't even gone to a cross. They're going, oh, that's a strange thing to say. But it makes way more sense to us, doesn't it? That, that someone who is saying, there is a place for death, but it's to get through it so you might experience life. Jesus endured the cross. But what makes it good news is that he rose. And it's the resurrection that becomes our, our paradigm. It's the resurrection that becomes how we're supposed to be able to look at life. So I want to read for you um, uh, one of my favorite uh, selections out of a book that's one of my favorites called All I Really Need to Know I Learned in Kindergarten. And um, so I'm just going to go ahead and read this, this phrase to you or this paragraph to you. Giants, wizards, and dwarfs was the game to play. Being left in charge of about 80 children aged 7 to 10 while their parents were off doing parenting things, I mustered my troops in the church social hall and explained the game. It's a large-scale version of rock, scissors, and paper. Uh, It involves some intellectual decision-making, but the real purpose of the game is to make a lot of noise and run around chasing each other until no one knows who's who's on what side or who's won. Organizing a room full of wired-up grade schoolers into two teams, explaining the rudiments of the game, achieving consensus on group identity, all this was no mean accomplishment, but we did it in right good order and we were ready to go. The excitement of the chase had reached critical mass, and I yelled out, you have to decide now, are you a giant, a wizard, or a dwarf? And while the groups were in huddled frenzy, whispering consultation, a tug came at my pant leg. A small child stands looking up and asks in a small, concerned voice, where do the mermaids stand? (laughs) Where do the mermaids stand? A long pause, a very long pause. Where do the mermaids stand, said I. Yes, you see, I am a mermaid. Oh, there are no such things of mermaid. Oh, yes, I am one. (laughs) She did not relate to being a giant, a wizard, or a dwarf. She knew her category, mermaid. And she was not about to leave the game and go stand over against the wall where a loser might stand. She intended to participate wherever mermaids fit into the grand scheme of things. 
Without giving up her dignity or identity, she took it for granted that there was a place for mermaids and that I would know just where that is. Well, where do the mermaids stand? All the mermaids who are different, who do not fit the norm, who do not accept the available boxes and pigeonholes. Answer that question and you can build a school, a nation, or a world. What was my answer at the moment? Well, every once in a while I say the right thing. The mermaid stands right here by the king of the sea, said I. Right here by the king of fools, thought I. So we stood there hand in hand reviewing the troops of wizards, giants, and dwarfs. And as they roiled by, they were in wild disarray. It's not true, by the way, that there are no mermaids. I have held the hand of one. So I want you to know that... um, it's just a story. I mean, I think it probably happened in his uh, church lobby. But what I want to do is kind of take that and move it a little bit more. And uh, in a world that screams out all kinds of categories under a banner called It's Broken or a symbol called Death, we get to tug at the pant leg of Jesus and go, where do the resurrected people stand? And he says, right here by the king of the universe. And we have a place to fit in a world of disarray and frenzy. We have a place to be resurrected people, people of the resurrection even now, not just when we die, but people who fly under a banner called resurrection and life rather than under broken and death. We get to be salt and light. We get to be members of a kingdom that's coming with more and more reality every day as the, the rebellion of death and broken fades, that it loses its grip. And you may not feel like it's losing its grip, but God is telling each of us, I'm the resurrection and the life. So doubt your doubt. And believe your belief and be formed by a resurrection. As we come to this table today, that's what this is all about. Somebody who endured death that you might be formed by the resurrection. You're invited to that grace today as we celebrate him. Let's pray. God, thank you that as the Father of all. It was important enough to you to rescue us by letting your son, who is the life giver, come into a world that was broken and experience the harshest blow that could be dealt, his death for us. That we might experience his resurrected life. I pray that we might know that grace today in Jesus' name. Amen. We pray that God will use this message to strengthen your faith and draw you into a deeper relationship with himself. If you're interested in hearing other sermons or want more information about the church, please visit our website at www.amargodaycommunity.com. Thanks a lot for listening.